0: Welcome to the Fifteen Past Fifteen Podcast Season 2. My name is Birgit Tremel-Werner.
1: And I'm Martin Diesenbury.
0: Our band of loyal listeners will remember that Fifteen Past 15's first season focused on the writing of history in East Asia. Interview topics ranged from the so-called Chinese Renaissance to imaginations of Japan's early modern Columbus. This season, we shall focus less on a particular world region and more on a single theme, namely wealth. In the 15 interviews that make up this second season, we want to ask about how wealth has been imagined, theorized, displayed, moved, and dug up, and of equal importance, how wealth has been written about by historians.
1: Part of the inspiration for this theme still comes from East Asia, however. When I lived in a small Japanese port town in the early 2000s, I would always drive by a large billboard on the main road into town, which proclaimed, Katsuryoku aru yutaka na machi Let's make a town full of vitality and richness through nuclear power. This was one of the many pieces of propaganda pushing for the small town Kamenaseki to host a new nuclear power station. To many outsiders, nuclear power might seem to be the standout phrase of the billboard, but I would argue that the most provocative word is yutaka, rich. Yutaka can also mean affluence, as in the so-called affluent society of Japan's post-war decades. And in combination with another Chinese character for wealth, its alternative reading, hofu, can also mean abundance, plenty, or bounty. Living in Kaminaseki, I began to understand the full range of meanings that can be associated with ideas of richness and wealth. Yutaka referred to the alleged financial benefits of nuclear power in terms of tax returns. It referred to a sense of societal security in terms of younger people having stable jobs. It referenced the port town's rich history as a trading hub in Western Japan's inland sea. But in the hands of anti-nuclear activists, Yutaka also referred to the richness of the environment and local ecosystems, which they claimed would be permanently damaged by building a nuclear power station. It spoke to the questionable ethics of accepting riches bestowed by an outside company and the central government. And it connoted a set of societal values that were more important than money or profit.
0: And so wealth opens up all sorts of different ways of imagining the world we live in and the world of the past. Back in June of 2019, the University of Zürich hosted the fifth Congress of the Association of Swiss Historians on the topic of Reichtum, Richesse, or in English, Wealth. We decided to use this conference as the starting point for our second series of 15 past 15, in order to explore questions of capital, labor, inheritance, charity, luxury, resource extraction, and much more. To discuss some of these themes, we are delighted to be joined in this first interview of Season 2 by Simon Teuscher, Professor for Medieval History at the University of Zürich and currently co-chair of the Department of History here. Professor Teuscher was one of the members of the Steering Committee for the Conference on Wealth. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: And so our first question is a simple one. Why did you choose Reichtum or as the conference main theme?
2: Wealth is such not among the major topics in history today, but many topical debates converge on wealth. Uh, Questions about growing inequality, about paid and unpaid labor, in particular for care work and its relations to distributing access to wealth, questions about wealth and power, of course, a classic topic of political history in particular, and then environmental problems, uh, the, the limits of the imperative to maximize wealth. Uh, one of the departing points of our discussions about wealth as a topic for the conference uh, was indeed the the saying of François Guizot, a prime minister of France in the 1840s, who uh, justified property qualification in elections by the slogan Enrichissez-vous par le travail et l'épargne, saying that uh, although there was a a census uh, voting system uh, with where where property determined the weight of your vote, uh, he said wealth is something that is accessible to everybody.
0: And what then is the significance of studying wealth in a place like Zürich or Switzerland?
2: Well, that is, of course, taken as a joke by many of the other Swiss uh, to standing for the financial world and for wealth uh, in Switzerland. But uh, our interest in wealth, I mean, mean, we liked uh, this, um, how do you call it, punch. (laughs) We liked the punch related to it, but our interest in wealth was really of an academic uh, kind.
0: So you're a medieval historian. How does this theme of wealth relate to your own research?
2: One of the ways in which I got interested in wealth is uh, through my work on uh, kinship and the long-term development of kinship in European history. Uh, The conventional wisdom uh, says that uh, kinship has been in decline ever since the Middle Ages in European history and that uh, the declining importance of kinship and the growing importance of the individual is a distinguishing feature of modernization as it happened in the West and is supposed to happen in the rest of the world. And when we... uh, Look at wealth, it is very obvious that even in modern and postmodern Western societies, kinship is far from having uh, disappeared. the share of wealth that is passed on through inheritance uh, has been growing in the last few decades. And uh, modern democracies have not delivered on their promise to dissociate power from uh, descent and inheritance uh, when we take wealth into consideration.
1: So in this context, um, speaking as a non-medieval historian, I think it's fair to say, Um, do we mean by kinship something that is uh, a way of describing and strategizing relations between uh, units of, of a household, which could be family members related by blood, but also could extend beyond family blood ties?
2: Yes, it's certainly something that is larger than the family. I mean, one way of thinking about the decline of kinship in the uh, classics of social science since the 19th century has been to say that kinship is sh- shrinking in the course of history. It's shrinking down to the size of the nuclear family and then ultimately the entirely isolated individual. So kinship is certainly larger uh, than the household and uh, a family. And uh, and you've mentioned
1: in your answer just now something about inheritance and kinship, that by thinking about how wealth is distributed or redistributed or, or channels, uh, that this gives us new ways of thinking about kinship relations. Can you say a little bit more on that for a non-expert?
2: Well, uh, one way of thinking about kinship relations is that they are ways in which people organize themselves around property. And uh, what we try to uh, establish, or what I try to establish in my research, is that kinship rather than disappearing or declining is something that is changing. And one of the ways in which it changes is in relation to uh, forms of property and forms of wealth. Can you give us an example? Um, yes. Uh, so in the course of the Middle Ages, people, um, uh landed property became an ever more important source of both wealth and political power. And as this happened, uh, families were organizing themselves around the conservation and the transmission uh, of that landed property, which often implied uh, systems of inheritance and kinship that uh, had a strong emphasis on Passing pieces of property undivided on to the next generation, be it in the form of uh, of a strict entail or of primogeniture, uh, where. Uh, Daughters are excluded from inheritance, and younger sons are excluded as well in order to allow for the passage of property to just one individual in the next uh, generation. When we come into the 19th century, kinship does not disappear at all, but landed property is not as important anymore as is capital, and capital can be passed on. throughout generations in completely different ways. Now equal inheritance is entirely possible and kinship is more used to pool capital and early industrialism is not bank financed there were, was no investment banking in the early 19th century but it's largely uh, financed through kin groups that uh, keep their stocks together and while they are dividing and uh, passing on property to all children they uh, guarantee that uh, property is kept together and firms are kept together through uh, intermarriage among kin. Uh, So the 19th century is the big uh, uh, period of cousin marriage uh, in the West. So when we talk about
1: cousin marriages, uh, presumably one of the key strategies of trying to keep wealth within a a kinship group involves the role of women then. Um, Can you say a little bit about how women remain crucial to a story of wealth creation and wealth maintenance and how that is perhaps different from this idea of the male 19th century entrepreneur who, through his individual talents, builds new riches.
2: Yes, I mean, our ideas uh, about a modern society are very much that wealth uh, depends on individual achievement, mainly by men uh, who Get wealthy because they are smart, or because they work hard, or because they are lucky. Uh, but we see uh, if we if we look at. Uh, at inheritance how uh, tremendously important uh, women are in the whole process because they get equal shares of wealth as their brothers and they bring it into their marriages but often remain invisible as uh, bearers of wealth. It's the husband who is an industrial entrepreneur but it's his wife that brought in uh, the capital. Uh, And more generally this reminds us of the role of social uh, relations in the setup of uh, society and in the distribution uh, of wealth. And I'm not only thinking of class relations and that there are classes that have a lot of property and classes that don't have, but this also goes into households where um, you have uh, women who do uh, unpaid labor, and men who do paid labor and uh, the whole is related to each other through uh, relationships
0: so hearing now about property and distribution in the medieval period of course wealth was not only about land but it was also about the power over people can you say a bit more about that
2: Yes, I mean, quite generally, we see that uh, wealth takes on very different forms in the course of history. And uh, the most relevant forms of wealth take on different forms. In the early Middle Ages, uh, land was uh, available uh, to everybody. There was enough land. What was scarce was uh, human resources. Uh, It was people who could work the land. And uh, owning people, having The property of people in the forms of slaves, of serfs, uh, was absolutely crucial. Uh, As population grew in the course of uh, the Middle Ages, uh, land became the scarce resource, and we see a reorganization of uh, people and also of family relations uh, around the property uh, of uh, wealth. And uh, in the 19th century, we uh, see a transition to capital uh, as the central form of wealth that is uh, very fluid, that can be merged and divided very easily, uh, which requires an entirely new set of uh, social relations. And uh, maybe today we're on the way to a, a form of wealth that is mainly based on information and user data uh, where capital an economy where capital that isn't as capital intensive anymore as industrial uh, uh, capitalism was and uh, we will see where this will take us when it comes to social relationships good this
1: this brings us to a question of maybe what one does with wealth if you're lucky enough to have it Um, In the medieval period, what are the sense of obligations that come with great wealth?
2: In the medieval period, the Catholic Church certainly asked uh, for charity and uh, demanded that the wealthy give uh, to the poor in ways that are no longer... uh, A matter of course, uh, today, Uh, the poor were not seen as a problem as much as a chance and an opportunity for the wealthy who could give to them. Uh, this started to change around the 15th century when questions about deserving and undeserving poor became very important. Uh, so, so we have ruptures uh, when it when it comes to the the cultures of charity. Although there is an important amount of charity even today, um, we have in modern societies solved a lot of these problems through uh, taxation and social security systems. But something that is that represents a continuity is um, the desire of very wealthy people to sublimize their wealth and to make forget the often not very clean ways in which they have acquired their wealth and to turn dirty money into good money. Uh, in the medieval period uh, an important strategy were religious foundations. It was to uh, give wealth to build monasteries and to entertain uh, positions of priests uh, uh, to uh, turn uh, wealth into art in church buildings that should remind of uh, of, of supreme powers. Um, but we see very similar things today in art collections and in the uh, desire to uh, turn money into beauty and give it to give it an aesthetic value that is accessible to everybody and at the same time also, uh, in a way, makes forget the ways in which that money uh, originally had been acquired.
1: You just talked about continuities across this long span uh, in terms of trying to hide dirty money and recycle it in new ways. of course, if we think about a period in the 18th going into the 19th century of major revolutions, this idea that there, were, there would eventually be continuities from the medieval period to the 20th, 21st century would be an abhorrence to the revolutionaries then, who had this idea of a complete break. Can you say a little bit more about their imagination of... Wealth in new ways in the new societies they
2: were building? Well, I think the revolutions around 1800, the French Revolution or the American Revolutions and all the revolutions that followed um, were successful in some sense in dissociating uh, political offices and political power from descent and inheritance. Uh, but at the same time uh, we also there see important continuities that are that often go unacknowledged. Uh, in particular the fact that wealth continues to be passed on uh, through generations and passed on through inheritance. And uh, this may be even to a growing extent uh, this is maybe the moment to invoke the uh, study of Piketty and many who followed in his footsteps and who showed that in most Western countries uh, the share of individual wealth that comes from work rather than inheritance has been growing throughout many decades since the early 19th century up to the 1970s. Uh, but since the 1970s, this development has been overturned and ever more of the wealth, in particular the wealth of the very wealthy, uh, is coming from inheritance uh, again. And the uh, opportunities of getting wealthy through labor and through talent and through merit are shrinking uh, uh, compared to the early 19th century. So we are in a way not really succeeding in uh, moving away from the feudal world, but uh, seemed to be returning to its logics. But
0: this isn't still a very Western story, right? What about the rest?
2: Well, the story, i, I as a European historian, I don't know uh, about the rest and I wouldn't dare to charge. But, is that a bad answer? No, that's great. That's not stopped other people. But what, no. I, but, but what I can do is that the ideas of Western exceptionalism are wrong. It's not like the West on its leading path to modernity as it has been conceived uh, for the longest time is moving towards ever more uh, individualism and ever more meritocracy. But uh, in the West uh, there is happening exactly what Westerners like to project on the rest of the world, namely uh, that uh, wealth and power there are uh, transmitted through families and that they are highly organized around families and kinship. So uh, I, I think the West is maybe the place more than anywhere else where kinship continues to matter far into uh, the postmodern period, and I'm not sure whether this is the kind the case in other societies as well.
1: Simon Toša, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me.